Well, this morning we are wrapping up our series, When Pigs Fly. Uh, this has been kind of our, our series on the impossible. We're talking about uh, the impossible things that God can do and desires to do in our life. We began looking at the story of Mary, right? When um, angels appear to her and say, hey, you, you'll have a child. And uh, she's like, well, I, I haven't, you know, slept with anyone. How, how can I have a child? And they said, no, God's going to come upon you and you will have a child and he will be the son of God. You'll name him Jesus. And, and she has this response of, of okay. She sur- surrenders to God's will in that, even though that the, meant there'd be some challenging days ahead, as well as some uh, very amazing and, and awestruck days. And we see that the, the angel says, hey, nothing is impossible with God. There's nothing that God can't do. He, he's the one who made all this. He's, he's the one you who know, made the heavens and the earth and, and sustains it. He is uh, the author and perfecter of our faith. Nothing is impossible with God. And we looked at a second week about uh, where, where Paul, the Apostle Paul, comes to this place of saying, I can endure all things through Christ who strengthens. We see that in Philippians 4.13, a translation as I can do all things, but really the heart of what he's saying and, and the condition of, of where he's at uh, being in prison is, is I can endure all things. And, and uh, while initially it was kind of a, a little bit of a Debbie Downer of a morning, we really saw that there was hope in Christ. And we, we hopefully left here seeing okay, that there's hope to pour ourselves into God and pursue him and to know that no matter what we're going through in life, that we can endure all things through Christ who strengthens us. Not on our own, but through Christ. And then last week we looked at where Jesus heals uh, a demon-possessed boy, and we see uh, not only uh, the Father, but also maybe even the disciples a little bit struggling with different doubts, and, and how do we handle our doubts in the midst of faith? Does, does doubt negate our faith? We really No, it doesn't. It, it's, it's a piece of that, but we need to continue and, and lean into Jesus as we believe that he is one who can do all things. And this week, we're going to kind of continue on the same vein of, of looking at the impossible. And we have an impossible situation before us here today. It's one that we all have to face. It's one that from, from birth, from our early days uh, till today, and we'll continue, this is, this is always going to be an issue that we have to face. And none of us here have fully yet experienced it. Um, I, I would even go as far to say that only a few of us are, are uh, I should say a few, uh, not all of us maybe are even ready for it. Uh, maybe we're even ready in various capacities, um, this impossible situation that I'm referring to is really just the reality of life. It's just the reality of life. And, and more specifically, the impossible situation is that of death. What's that old proverb? That the only guarantee in life is what? Death and taxes. You know, the only thing are guaranteed. We, we know that a day will come where we have to face death. Have you ever faced a no-win situation? You've been in a position where there's just no way to win. And it could be in something light and silly. Maybe you're playing a card game. Maybe you're a fan of playing chess and you're at a point where no matter what you did, you lost a significant player on the board. Maybe you had to make a decision in life. You double booked yourself and something had to be canceled. Or maybe you didn't double book it. Just the way your schedules worked out. You had multiple things you had to get to with your kids. And then there was work stuff going on. And there's just no way to figure out a solution where it would win. Do you have any uh, Star Trek fans in here? Oh, we got a few. We got a few. You guys ever heard of the, the, the Kobayashi Maru uh, uh, simulation? It was the scenario that was set up uh, in the storylines where it's, it's a no-win situation. 
basically is supposed to test these commanders and how they respond to loss. It was a situation where there's a civilian fleet. And yes, I am getting into Star Trek, so bear with me. A civilian fleet that, that was uh, in distress and they were going to be destroyed. Basically, they're in this Klingon territory. If you don't know Star Trek, it's the bad guys. And um, basically, Starfleet could come in and rescue them. But if they did, there was the chance of basically launching a war because they're going into enemy territory. And they had this whole question of, of what do you do? And the, situa- the, the, the simulation was set up so that if you did go in to pursue your, the, the civilians in distress, that then that crew you sent in would be destroyed. That, that, that's the way the simulation was set up. And it was, how do you deal with loss? Really, the, the only way to, to defeat or, or to win the simulation what was to cheat because it was a, a no-win situation. So I, I think in a lot of ways, we can feel like life is a no-win situation sometimes. See, even if you're living every moment to its fullest and you're just, you know, it's like that towel trying to get the last bit of water, you're just wringing it out. We wring out all that there is in life. We still end up dead. Even if we gain the world, if we have anything and everything we've ever wanted, we cannot take it with us in death. Even if we, we live a life of sacrifice for the sake of others, we, we build a legacy around the way that we live our life. Our legacy is not ours to live. What I mean by that is once we're dead, we're dead and our, our legacy goes on. and We have no idea. There's people who have left behind a legacy uh, that maybe in their life wasn't anything uh, that, that was known. But in their death, certain situations happen where their story becomes known and a legacy is left behind, but they have no knowledge of that. They have no idea. Maybe even you think you've built a strong legacy, but again, when we die, we have no idea what goes on afterwards. Maybe you're you're a hard worker and you're you're feeling like, you know, I keep just, you know, busting my butt and I'm working hard and I feel like I'm getting nowhere. I just can't get traction. I can't accomplish the goals I'm trying to accomplish. I feel like every time we're starting to get traction, you know, something else blows up and, and, you know, there's all these other issues we have to face. Maybe to add injury to insult, you look around and you see someone in your life, you feel like, oh, they're barely working. Uh, they're actually just kind of you know, skating by, but you know, they continue to seem to prosper. It just doesn't make sense. You're left feeling like there has to be more to this life. No matter what I do, there's going to be an end, though. And that this is the impossible situation that we're going to face here this morning. We ask this question, well, how do we live in this life. So if we have the guarantee of death coming, how are we going to live in this life? When I was growing up, um, this is not, you know, I never even shared this all that much, but I always kind of had from time to time this, this running mental ledger, this, this mental financial ledger running in my head, where if all of a sudden I felt like I had a good deal, maybe I bought something, I got a sale, it was a plus, okay, well, I saved 20 bucks, okay, that's good, that's awesome. You know, I maximized these funds, and if it was just kind of a neutral thing that I didn't think much of it, okay, I just bought lunch for $5, it was $5, I paid $5, I'm good. Or if it was or at a loss, maybe I felt like I got cheated, or I just made a bad financial decision, and I saw that as a negative, and my goal was to have no negatives on my ledger. But the challenge, I really wanted to shoot for 100%. In my own head, I kind of had the whole scenario of, okay, if I can you know, maximize you know, my, you know, my life, and the one way I was kind of focusing in, zeroing in, was in how I utilized my finances. But the problem was the second I had a negative, I'd already lost. I'd already lost, I already had this thing, and, and I continue to think back on those things every once in a while. 
Back in the day, um, I, I had the benefit of, of, of getting a little uh, a project vehicle. I bought a 1980 CJ7. Uh, it's a Jeep, and it's an old school one. It's really the true Jeep, in my opinion. And uh, it was just a blast to, to get into work on him. Um, so I, I came with those deals. I went and I looked at it, and the lady was asking three grand. And um, like before I even opened my mouth, she talks herself down to like 2,500. And she said, like, well, I'll take 25. You know, I'm even a little negotiable from there. And, and I said, hey, I, I got two grand. W- w- would that work? It's like, oh, maybe I think that could work. We, the way we kind of left it is this, okay, well, let, let me just kind of think about it overnight because it was an extra vehicle. It wasn't something that we had to have and you know, there are other things we could spend that money on. And, and so I said, okay, I've learned from past negatives in my ledger, from past poor decisions. I'm going to take the night and sleep on this before I kind of make the final decision. And so I do just that and, and I call her up the next day to say, okay, yeah, two grand, let's do it. We got a deal. And she says, well... I still had the listing up, and I had someone call me, and they said they'd give me three grand for it, my asking price. I'm like, sorry, I can't do it. She's like, but if you do 2,500, meet me in the middle, okay, you got a deal. And on one hand, I could say, okay, well, I still feel good because I, I, I took my time, and I really thought through this, and this is, is a wise decision. It was still a good deal at 2,500, but I still remember that. Hey, I paid 500 bucks more than I had to. If I would have seen the future, if I would have known what was coming, I could have made a decision right then and there, and it still would have worked out, and I would have saved 500 bucks. And those kind of things I can't always forget. Those moments where you've left the store, and you look back, and you realize you got overcharged a dollar. You're like, that's just a dollar. It's not worth my time. Well, sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. But those times I didn't go back, those kind of would rub me the wrong way. So I keep this financial ledger. But see, it was a losing battle. It was a losing battle. I saw in one way my finances as a significant quantifier to my success at life. So if I had maximized that financial potential, I felt like a success. But see, none of this changed the fact that one day I'm going to die. And what's in my bank account, what was in my bank account, what's gone out of my bank account, won't make a lick of a difference in the grand scheme of things. See, this is an impossible situation in life, we're unable to escape death. We can't buy our way past it. We can't earn our way past it. We can't cheat our way past it and be like, oh, if I kind of blend in with the crowd, death won't find me. We can't compare our way past it and say, death, you want that guy. He's worse than me. I'm, I'm, I'm a little better. Take that guy. We can't escape it. But see, there's hope. Because in Jesus, while we'll still feel an experience of physical death, there's a promise of eternal life. And that's what we're looking at here this morning. It is this promise of eternal life. See, don't we all ask this question at some point in our life or, or another? We ask this question of, of what happens after death. What, what, what else is there? And see, what we believe about this question, what we believe the answer to be, impacts how we live our life, right? Depending on what we believe happens after we die, will have a significant impact on how we live up until that point. And this isn't coming as, as a surprise that I think most of us would say, yeah, I've had a moment in my life here or there, and if I haven't yet, it's probably coming where I've thought these things. What happens after death? Because that's how we were made. That's how we were wired. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Uh, this is uh, a Solomon, uh, what Scripture would declare as, as one of the wisest men to walk the face of this earth, who uh, in his prosperity and, and uh, what God had provided for him had experienced everything under the sun and had great wisdom, greater than any man to walk this earth. 
And he comes to this conclusion, he kind of lays out a lot of different thoughts here in Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes 3, 9 through 11, he's talking about uh, our, our toil, our work in this world. He says this, starting in verse 9, What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. He's put eternity into man's heart. So as he's unpacking, as he's talking about how we live in this world and what that looks like, he puts in this line here, but God's put eternity in our heart. That we think beyond just this world. We think beyond this life. And we think about what's going to happen after. There's something that stirs up inside of us. As we work, as we toil, as we look ahead, we wonder what's on the other side of death. But life beyond death is impossible, right? Well, let's see where our text goes. Matthew 19, 26. Again, if you catch nothing else, catch this this morning. In speaking about eternal life, with man, this is impossible. Okay, we've covered that so far. But with God, all things are possible. God that we serve, the God that we love, he is the God of the impossible. So is it impossible to escape death? Yes, But is there hope for eternal life? Yes. Because with God, all things are possible. We've got to pause real quick here because some of you uh, may be sitting here saying, you know what, Steve, I I don't even really believe that God exists. Uh, I'm just at a place right now in my life where I'm just... I don't think he exists. I'm not sure. Maybe you are. Say, I'm just sold out. You know, I'm here just because so-and-so invited me here, and I'm just trying to you know, make, make them happy. Or, you know what, I, just, I like the people, so that's why I come. Whatever your story is, first of all, know that we're glad you're here. Meadowland Church is a safe place to ask questions. It's a safe place to say, hey, I'm not sure I believe that yet. I'm not, I'm not sure I'm with you on that, Steve. That's Okay. We want to walk together as we pursue life, as we pursue Jesus. Maybe some of us are even here saying, okay, maybe I believe God exists, maybe I don't, but honestly, I don't really care what comes after. I'm just going to live in the reality of now. I'm just going to seize the day, live in this moment, and just kind of see what comes. If you're in either of those camps where either you don't believe that God exists or you don't really care what comes after this life, would you just consider for a moment the possibility of God's existence and his providing a way to, to live eternally with him through Jesus? Because if that's true, you got everything to gain. And if it's not, you got nothing to lose. If it's not, you got nothing to lose from your current standing. But if it's true that God exists and that there's life after death and that is found in Jesus, then we got everything to gain in acknowledging that truth. In view of eternity, this life that we're living is a mere pit stop along the way, along the journey of eternity. Imagine the timeline of eternity. How wide, how big, how, how large is this life on that scale? It's just a blip. So let's go see what Jesus uh, uh, says to a man who's kind of in a similar place to where we are right now, to the questions that we're asking. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew 19. We're going to be here this morning. The, the verses will be on the screen as well. Uh, but we're going to be looking at a story called The Rich Young Ruler. 
And it's actually found in three of the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And each one kind of gives us a little more information about who this man is. Uh, we see in uh, Matthew that he was young. Um, and the kind of young he was talking about, we can infer, basically talking about he's younger than his peers. And so those that he's working with and doing life together with, he's the younger guy in the group. And yet you can see there's some success there. All three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all refer to him as being wealthy in some capacity or another. And then Luke even goes as far to say he was a ruler. Now, many commentaries and, and, and theologians have said, well, he must have been uh, a ruler in the synagogue of some sort because you see the questions he's asking, the things that he's familiar with when Jesus responds to his questions. Uh, it's very possible that he would have had a, a role in a synagogue, but ultimately he's in a position of authority. He's in a position of authority. He's got some wealth um, and he's got some youth. And, and so really, this is one of those guys, he's got everything going for him. He's got everything going for him. Yeah, I think it's, this is a great story to look at because in one way or another, I think we can all relate to that. Even if we say, hey, I look around and I feel like I just got nothing going for me and I keep getting beaten down. If we expand our scope beyond our community, beyond our town, beyond our state, beyond our nation, and go beyond the borders of our nation, and we look at the scope of, of the world compared to, to others in our world, we got a lot going for us. The freedoms that we experience, the opportunities that we have before us, the benefits we have of living in America are vast and are huge. And so in a lot of ways, I think we can uh, connect with the story of this rich young ruler. So he comes up to Jesus in Matthew 19. We're going to begin in verse 16. Uh, if you need a Bible, again, take one of the ones in the pews. Those are always available to you. You can go digital as well. There's free Wi-Fi in the building for that purpose. Matthew 19, 16. And behold, a man came up to him, this is referring to Jesus, came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? There's the question of the day. What must I do to inherit eternal life? In essence, this guy's like, hey, I've earned everything else already. I've worked hard. You know, I got all that I need. What's left? Okay, well, what about eternal life? What happens after I die? So he goes to Jesus and says, hey, what must I do to gain eternal life. What's interesting is like, you kind of get this sense that right away his focus is on his own ability. It's on his own power, what he can do. Okay, well, I've gotten wealth. You know, I've gotten authority. Um, you know, so I really got this life kind of taken care of. And hey, let's take care of the next. What do I need to do to gain that? How can I earn it? It's an independent man who's been blessed with many resources. And so Jesus responds to him here. And verse 17, and he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, referring to the eternal life that he was asking about, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. See, when Jesus asks him, Why do you ask me about what is good? What he's basically asking him is, that, Why are you coming to me? Did you truly realize who I am when you come to me and ask these questions? Because you see, the, the rich young ruler says teacher. And so he already has uh, a certain acknowledgement. Okay, you, you're someone who knows some stuff. You're in a position of authority to teach others. So he, he acknowledges that. And then in that culture, to ask on things of, of what is good and what is not, those would be things that in line with God. Only God would, would, know what, would be able to declare what is good and what is not. And, and so is he saying that maybe Jesus is the Messiah? Or is he just saying, hey, I'm just trying to figure those things out? But he's come to this place where I think Jesus is saying, do you really realize 
who I am? Do you know who it is that you're talking to? Do you realize that I was there when, when you were knit together in your mother's womb? I, I know even the hairs on your head. I would argue that this rich young ruler, while he saw someone worth finding wisdom from in Jesus, when I read this account, I say, you know, I don't think he fully understood who Jesus was. I don't believe he saw him fully as Lord and as Savior. I don't know if you've ever felt that way, but if you have, we say, you know what, I'm not sure I really understand who this Jesus is. You know, I'm so excited about this next series coming up. This next series that's going to lead us uh, all the way up until Easter is called Jesus Is. And we'll be looking at seven statements that we see in the book of John where, where Jesus has these I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am. He walks through all these different statements and each one tells us a little more about who he is and what that means for our lives. And so for the next seven weeks, we're going to have an intensive look at who Jesus is. And so if you're at that place saying, you know what, I've been there before and I'm, I'm not really sure who Jesus is, man, just, just, just commit to these next seven weeks as, as we take a journey together from now up, up until Easter. And then we can celebrate the reality and the truth of who Jesus is and, and what he's done. And if you know all that, let it be just a, an amazing road together as we celebrate those truths in our lives and see in light of who Jesus is, that means I, I, I have the freedom to go and live in this reality, in this capacity. So that's what we have coming up in our next series, Jesus Is. In the light of who Jesus is, we'll see who we are called to be. So Jesus answers this question. He says, all right, so to have eternal life, what do you do? Keep the commandments. Basically, I mean, he's back up. So if you haven't broken any of the commandments of God, you're all good. It, it, there's nothing separating you and God if, if you've kept all the commandments. All right, so what does the man say? Matthew 19, 18. He said to him, which ones? Are there just a few I need to follow, or which ones do I need to follow? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witnesses. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? All right, I'm with you, Jesus. I got those covered. So basically what Jesus does, he starts to listen off some of the Ten Commandments. This is roughly numbers, uh, um, he gets uh, uh, five through nine. And then he kind of sums it up as well and say, okay, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus questioned uh, about the, the greatest uh, command, he says, okay, love God. And then he gives a second, which is love others. So this sums up the heart of the law. And so he kind of gives uh, a few of the Ten Commandments. That, and it specifically pulls out the ones that have to do with uh, one's relationship with others. It's as if he's saying, okay, well, we need to make sure that we're honoring God by the way we live with others. You do that, okay, that, that, that's one of the things you've got to do. You say, hey, I've, I've covered all that. I've got it all. If you're sitting here today, similar to where the rich young ruler is, I put a word of caution out there. See, Jesus has already given a sermon on the mountain. I'm guessing this rich young ruler hasn't heard about it because Jesus really kind of uh, just blew the minds of the people there because he said, hey, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, which would have been one of the commandments. I, I say, if you, if, you commit, uh, if you lust after someone, you've committed adultery in your heart. Because, hey, you've heard it said, do not commit murder. But if you have anger, hatred towards your brother, you've already committed that in your heart, in essence, is what he says. You're in the same position of judgment as one who is a murderer. And so Jesus takes all these actions that we're commanded against 
and says, let's deal with the matters of the heart. Where's your heart on these things? And he expands what, what those are talking about. And I think as we look at that, as we look at the heart of Jesus and, and what he's saying, it means to truly follow God's commands. We see we've messed up. We've all messed up. And if that's you here this morning, know that you're in good company. You're in good company. We are all broken and hurting people in need of a Savior. And so this rich young ruler basically says, hey, I got those covered. I've, I've cared for others. What else is there? Kind of has what we'd see in our culture. People say, oh, I'm, I'm a good person. I'm all good. I don't need to worry about Jesus or anything. I'm a good person. Well, Jesus says in verse 21, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And so we also see the standard is reinforced as far as, what does it take to be in relationship with God? What does Jesus say? Perfection. Well, if you want to be perfect, if you want eternal life, if you want to be in relationship with God uh, for eternity, it takes perfection. I've already given this whole list of, of, verse, of commandments that have to do with our relationship with others. You said that you got them covered. All right, let's talk about your heart for God. Let's talk about where you stand with God. Go and sell your, what you possess and then come and follow me. Go and sell what you possess and then come and follow me. I think when we hear this, our focus quickly jumps to the go and sell. That's the first thing that we hear. One, it's the first thing that's stated, but I think for us, it, it strikes the, the bigger chord. We, we imagine, what if Jesus is asking that of me? We start thinking about some of the things that we have. I, I don't want to sell that. I really kind of like that. I, I worked hard for that. I saved up, and, and, and you, know, I, you know what? I really like that. Maybe we even moved to the, the defensive. What's, what's Je- what right does Jesus have saying to, to sell everything? Money's not bad. And it's not. Money is morally neutral. It is the the use of or the position of money in one's life that has moral significance. The way in which we use it that has moral significance. The, the, The way, the place we allow it of authority in our life where it dictates our actions has moral significance. But money in of itself is neutral, so maybe we get defensive. But see, what's interesting is this command to go and sell is not a universal one. This, this is one to this rich young ruler. Jesus is saying, okay, as far as you and I are concerned, here's what you need to go do. Go and sell your possessions and then come and follow me. Well, how, how do we know this isn't something more universal? Well, you, you don't see this consistently throughout Scripture. You actually see Jesus talking to other people who have wealth and doesn't bring it up. You see him talking to someone uh, called Nicodemus. Uh, you see him talking to, I'm sorry, Zacchaeus is the other one, in Luke 19. Where Zacchaeus gets to a place where God's just doing some stuff in his life and any response is, you know what? I'm going to sell half of my stuff and, and, and give it to those in need. And Jesus doesn't say, well, actually, I'm, I'm looking for all of it. I need to sell all of it. He, he doesn't say that. You know, so we can see that this isn't a command that, that's universal, but this is one for this rich young ruler. Jesus knew the rich young ruler was trusting in his wealth for life. That's where his hope was. That's where his, his trust was. It was in the things that we had. And so this call of go and sell is actually one of surrender. Are you willing to surrender what you're trusting in and replacing that to trust fully in me? 
And even for those of us here this morning who say, okay, Steve, I see where you're going. We need, we need to trust in Jesus for, for eternal life. I'm with you on that. I believe that. I got you. All right, I can take a nap. Let me know when you're done. Even if you're in that place, so I think there's still lifelines that we feel we need to hold on to and say, okay, Jesus, I, I, I know I trust in you, but I need to hold on to this too. And okay, well, you know, if I got one lifeline, I mean, three are really going to be awesome. So here's all these things that we hold on to and that begin to have an authority in our life, uh, sometimes even above Jesus. And maybe that's even where this rich young ruler is. I'm kind of imposing this on him. He doesn't, we don't see this in the scripture, but maybe, who knows? Maybe he was pursuing God in a place of fully trusting in God, but then as his wealth grew, as his authority grew, hey, I'm kind of the man. I got this life thing figured out. There's nothing really I, I need to worry about. And so he had his trust in his finances, but death still comes to us all, and that is no lifeline. So what are we trusting in apart from Jesus for eternal life? Let's talk about some possible things. Maybe you're trusting in comparison. Maybe you're trusting in simply being better than the guy sitting next to you. Maybe actually you, you look for someone whose, whose, mess is kind of, whose life is kind of a mess because you figure, hey, I'll be friends with that guy and, and you know what, at least I'm better than this guy. You know, God will take me into heaven based off of that. And it's just that there's just no, there's no sense for that. We already saw that, that Jesus said, okay, well, perfection. If you want to be perfect, if you want to have eternal life, it takes perfection because to not be perfect separates us from God. So it doesn't matter how many people we're better than or how many people we think we're better than even. That's not a, something worth trusting in for eternal life. Maybe you just say, hey, I'm a nice guy. I can just kind of blend in with the crowd. And when, when the end of days come, you know, I just kind of blend in. Okay, this whole group of nice guys, you're into heaven. We, we need to you know, fill out the nice guy section. And again, God knows us. He knows the hairs on our head. We see in the book of Psalms. He knows our thoughts. He knows some of the things that we've done. He knows all that we've done. There's no hiding. There's no sneaking in or blending in. We stand bare before God, exposed. Maybe you say, hey, I'm trusting in my religion. I've been going to church since the, the church was even there. You know, I was born in that church. I was baptized in that church. I was married in that church. Half my family's been, been buried through that church. Man, I, I'm a part of religion. I do all the things I'm told to do. I stand where I'm told to stand. I sit where I'm told to sit. I take communion where I'm told to take communion. I go to Bible study. I've always done church stuff. Is that enough? That misses out on the whole heart of Jesus, of being in relationship with the living God. This is this this my approach to, uh, to Spanish. I didn't want to take Spanish in college. I, don't, I just had no desire to continue my foreign language studies. I, I, just, I struggle with foreign language. Um, I, I struggle with one language. I struggle with English. <laughs> but, so my whole heart was, was Spanish. I kept telling my counselors when I was setting up the next year's classes, how many classes do I have to have in high school so I can guarantee I don't have to take Spanish in, in college? And they'd say, you need three. Okay, so I take it all the way up to my junior year. And that's okay. Am I good? And my one teacher said, well, some schools. Okay, sign me up for my fourth year. I, I don't want to take it going into college. And it was, okay, I, just, I need to check these boxes to say, okay, I've fulfilled my Spanish obligation. But we rely in religion and religion alone, the outworking of our faith. What we're saying is I'm filling a bunch of check boxes. All right, God, here's my attendance sheet. You'll notice there's a little few that I missed, but I had, I had some, you know, I had the flu there, and so that's why I missed that one. And 
That's not what God's looking for. Again, we're called to perfection. And, and that, that, that's the impossible situation before us today. I think sometimes we just say, I'll just have you know, that, that childlike faith, that blind faith. And, and those are two different things. We're fooling ourselves that we're just trusting in a blind faith to say, well, I'll just hope for the best. Faith doesn't need to be blind. We, we can have an educated faith, one that asks questions, that explores, that learns, that discovers who God is through his created world and through his written word and through his Holy Spirit. We can place our faith in him. Maybe you just say, I want to will it to be. You know what? If I have enough positive thinking, I'll just will eternal life to be. And I'm sorry. I know this is kind of a pet peeve of mine, but, but just to be honest here, Positive thinking can influence others. It can maybe put a smile on someone's face, but there is no power in good thoughts and positive thinking to change our lives. That power is in Christ. Yeah, I'm not dissing positive thoughts. Let's all have a good outlook on life. I think that that honors God to have a certain sense of, of, of hope and optimism in the life ahead. But when you see someone going through a challenging situation, we just say, I'll send some positive thoughts your way. That's an empty offer. And I know that's not people's hearts when they say that. They're trying to help. But if we're going to give someone hope, let's give them hope in something that will stand. Let's give them hope in Christ Jesus. And so he says, go sell. Go and sell everything. It's a call to surrender. It's a call to let go of the lifelines that we're holding on to. And then he says, hey, here's what you trust in. Come and follow me. And we see this invitation all throughout Scripture. So we know this is not only to the rich young ruler, but to us as well. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus invites this rich young ruler, and he invites us to lay down, to sacrifice the things of this world in exchange for eternal, for, for everlasting life, life in heaven, life with God, an eternity spent with him, a relationship with Jesus. See, this rich young ruler was, was spiritually empty and physically full. And this is, I think, the condition of so many in our world today. Physically full, but spiritually empty. And Jesus calls him, will you empty yourself of those things you trust in physically and then fill yourself with me? In Christ, we can become spiritually full. And Jesus said to his disciples, this is verse 23, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When we first hear this, it's probably a little startling. Whoa, those are some harsh words, Jesus. Some scholars have said, okay, that there was a, uh, a gate in the walls of Jerusalem that was called uh, the, the Needle Gate, and it was this narrow, low-pass gate that for a camel to be able to get through the, the, the needle, the eye of the needle, you know, the entrance of, of this Needle Gate, that you have to take the pack off and you know, slim it down and, you know, as much as you could, and that would have to actually crawl through on its knees. Uh, um, if you've heard that, that there's really no uh, a biblical or historical evidence for that. People then say, okay, well, that means what Jesus is saying, he's saying that we need to humble ourselves. Like, like a camel would have to go through on its knees. I don't even know if a camel can go through on its knees, but let's imagine it could for the sake of argument. You know, some people would say, okay, Jesus is saying, you just need to humble yourself to get into heaven. That, that's all it takes. And while, while that's a part of the equation, that falls, so, that falls so short of what Jesus is actually saying here. 
What do you think about when you hear someone say, to put a camel through the eye of a needle? I think it's impossible. That's what he's saying. He's saying this is something that's impossible. That actually would have been, uh, the Babylonian Jews would have had a similar phrase to talk about, uh, it's, you know, they put an elephant through the eye of a needle. Because that, that would have been the largest creature that, that they were familiar with in their time. And so now you bring it here to where Jesus is, and a camel would have been the largest animal that they would have been familiar with. This would be like us saying, it's like trying to put a whale through the eye of a needle. Or it's like trying to put a dinosaur through the eye of a needle. This massive beast through this small opening. It's a hyperbole. It's a hyperbole. He's exaggerating to, to, to put an emphasis on what he's saying. We do this all the time. I have a ton of work to do, honey. Yeah, you literally have a dump truck that's going to back up a ton, a literal ton of stuff. No, we use hyperboles all the time. Maybe use it in squat. Mom, Dad, I'm sorry. I can't do my chores because I have a ton of homework to do. This one's gotten me in trouble before. Honey, you're taking forever. She's not actually taking forever. It's probably going to take longer now if I keep saying that because, you know, I'm not, not helping myself. E- even Jesus used hyperbole. Even other places than just here. He's talking about our relationship with others, and he says, don't, don't point out the speck in your brother's eye when you have a plank in your own. Now, he, he's not seeing people walking around with two-by-fours sticking out of their face. It's a hyperbole. It, it's, it's an expression. So basically what he's saying here is it's easier to do something impossible for the camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter heaven. Also, this is a tough word he keeps on going when the the disciples heard this in verse 25 they were greatly astonished saying who then can be saved see part of that even that who then can be saved it's very possible that they would have uh, thought some similar things that the culture would have thought at that time they would have seen wealth as god's blessing and so if here's someone who's got wealth and authority, who has God's blessing upon him, and Jesus has just said, who we believe to be the Messiah, the Savior, who's come to save us, he's just said, it's, it's, it's impossible for this guy to get into heaven, who we see as having God's blessing. Who, who can be saved then? Can anybody be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible. Okay, we've covered that pretty well this morning. But with God all things are possible. The impossible that is done in Jesus is salvation. That when we trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins, that we are made perfect. That when God looks at us, when we've trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, he sees the perfection of Jesus in us. And so the call for this rich young man, this rich young ruler to to go sell all his stuff wasn't one, the focus wasn't the finances, it was what he was trusting in instead of trusting in Jesus. And so what is that for us? Are we willing to let go of that? To go and sell that, whatever it is, to get rid of that? And then to say, okay, I'll come follow Jesus. For some of you, you maybe have never taken this step in your life. You've heard this good news. Maybe this is the first time you're hearing the good news. You're like, okay, what do I do with this? I want to trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Uh, I want to uh, receive eternal life through Jesus. What do I do? Well, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's by grace through faith. 
And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This isn't anything that we've done on our own. It's the gift of God. God in his grace said, here, I want to offer you this gift of eternal life. And I'm offering it to you through faith. Faith in Jesus and saying, Jesus, I believe you are God. I believe your death on the cross paid the price for my sin, past, present, and future. That your death was sufficient. And I believe that there's not only life in you in this world, but there is everlasting life in you. I believe that when God looks at me, he sees perfection. If you've never taken this step in your life, I invite you to take this step here this morning to say, God, I trust in you. I throw off what I've been relying in and I trust in Jesus for salvation. If that's you today, don't let it go silent. Tell someone. Talk to the person who came with this morning. Come come see me afterwards. Talk to anyone else here at the church. Say, hey, you know what? I'm I'm trusting in Jesus now. Because Scripture talks about that there's a celebration in heaven when one repents, where they say, okay, my way has failed me. I I, I turn from that, and I'm going to go and follow Jesus. Let me trust in him for life. And for those of us who have already acknowledged this and live in the reality of this truth, let us do just that. Let us live in the reality that, that we are made perfect in Christ. Let us live with the reality that we are made with eternity on our hearts. And what does that mean? That means that this world isn't our home. You, you ever been somewhere where you had to have a green card? Where you had to have your visa? You get stamped to get in. And you, you, you're a foreigner there. You're busy. You don't know the custom. You don't know the land. Maybe you did some research, but there's still a lot that you don't know, and maybe you feel out of place at times. I would argue that's how we're to live in this world. Because we have eternal life with God. In, in this world, as followers of Christ, we're meant to be aliens in this world, ambassadors for Christ. Not being in the world, or not being of the world, being in it where we share the good news of Jesus. So are we living in that reality? Are we living in that reality? Let's pray. Father God, you are a great and glorious God. We just thank you so much for this morning. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to praise you. We thank you that there is everlasting life found in you. That there's a solution to this impossible solution of death. That in you, you make all things possible. That we can trust in you for salvation. Father God, I pray that we would not walk out here this morning without considering what that means. I pray we would not leave this place without considering what lifelines have we been holding on to for eternal life and to acknowledge if they're not in Jesus, then they won't get us past death. Let us throw those off, go and sell those, and let us come and follow you, Jesus. Help us to see areas of our life where we've held back, where we're still holding on uh, to our own lifelines. And help us to let those go and trust in you. We love you, Father. Amen.